Over the last few Sundays, as most of you are aware, we have been steadily working our way through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah has been rebuilding the city walls of Jerusalem. And the walls are now complete. And God is taking the people of Jerusalem, and in fact, the people of all of Israel, to the next level in his relationship with them. And that will be our study this morning. So let's begin Nehemiah chapter 9. Verse 5, and the reading begins at Nehemiah's prayer. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ar of the Chaldeans and made him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you. Then over the page to verse 38 at the end of chapter 9, and in response to Nehemiah's prayer and encouragement, people of Jerusalem say these words, in view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And then jumping over to chapter 10, verse 37, the people in response to all that Nehemiah has shared say, moreover, We will bring to the storehouses of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and of new wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. And then to the closing words of the chapter, finally and in summary, we read, We will not neglect the house of our God. Most of you are aware, of course, that when Nehemiah hears that the city of Jerusalem is in a dilapidated condition, he speaks to his immediate boss, who was King Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes gives him permission to go back to Jerusalem to help build the surrounding or the retaining wall to the city of Jerusalem. And over a period of seven and a half weeks, which is not long, Nehemiah inspires, coordinates, and supervises 42 to 43,000 people. And they take on this massive construction program and they pull it off. He not only has motivated and inspired them, he perseveres and he stays with them. At times, they are uh, face significant opposition. And it began with God touching the heart and soul of Nehemiah and putting in there a vision of all that would happen. And with unrestrained commitment, dedication, and prayer, Nehemiah takes the lead and helps the folks in what was pretty much the once-in-a-generation opportunity. And the city itself 
uh, rallied to all that Nehemiah was doing before he arrived. No walls, no streets, dilapidated accommodation, no fresh water, no sewage, no gates on the exterior wall, nothing. And now, at last, over these last seven and a half weeks, the people of Jerusalem have discovered they have a future. And before we go any further, it's worth remembering this. And we said this in our first study together. That the temptation when you come to read the book of Nehemiah is this. To think that it is a manual packed with leadership principles. And there are leadership principles again and again and again. There are a multiplicity of lessons to learn from Nehemiah. But please understand this. Nehemiah wasn't written to provide us with leadership principles. It was provided to tell us of the grace and wonder of the love of God. That's why it's there. Because God knew what the people of Jerusalem did not know. And we're about to see it this morning. God knew that their best days were not behind them. But in fact, their best days were still to come. And they were still to come because in God's redemptive purposes and plans, His eternal decrees from eternity past would come to fruition and climax in the birth of a Messiah some 400 years later when the salvation of all of humanity would take place. But the people in Nehemiah's day could not see that. For them, naturally, they were asking, is this a place where we can have children? Is this a place to raise families? Is this a place where we can find employment and trade and import and export? Will we be safe? And here is God saying, not only will you be safe, not only am I here to look after you, but I want you to understand what's taking place at an entirely different level. And so we see throughout these previous nine chapters, prayer defined Nehemiah. And we're about to see it here again in these early verses of chapter 9. Prayer defined Nehemiah. It wasn't his leadership skills. It wasn't his ability to be the clerk of works in terms of engineering and construction. But prayer defined Nehemiah. Notice how his prayer begins. Chapter 9, verse 5. He writes, blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Now, what is going on there? Well, the first thing you notice is this. This is not a perfunctory prayer. Nehemiah is not praying out of duty. He's praying out of necessity and dependency. And when he enters the presence of God, he loses himself, as the hymn writer would say, in wonder, worship, and praise. Now, let me pause for a second. Because I don't want you to miss this this morning. 
Sometimes we're tempted when we're praying just to begin with, God, thank you for your love towards me. Please help me with. And then we present a shopping list of of, uh, desires and needs. Now, that's not a bad prayer. But Nehemiah is modeling for us an entirely different kind of prayer. A prayer which is filled with thanksgiving. A prayer which is filled with awe. A prayer which is deep in gratitude. Grateful for God's sovereign working care over all of his created order. And he is worshiping. And what does that tell us? It tells us that the heart of Nehemiah and the heart of God are in tune. And Nehemiah is submitting and surrendering all of his hopes and dreams and desires to the purpose and plan of God. And he is retuning his deepest affections in order that they might be in tune with God. That's what's happening. This is a genuine, heartfelt, passionate prayer. And that's where Nehemiah is. He puts the prayer or the focus of the prayer where it belongs. This is probably the largest recorded or the longest recorded prayer in all of Scripture with one exception. It's the prayer of Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. But apart from Jesus, this is the longest prayer to be found in Scripture. And whenever you find a prayer of that length, you know that something spectacular is taking place. And what is taking place is this, that the prayer, first of all, goes up, then it goes back, and then it looks ahead. And that's not a bad model for prayer, to go up, look back, and then look ahead. But when it goes up, what is Nehemiah doing? Nehemiah is caught up in the transcendent majesty and magnificence of God. And he realizes whose presence he's in. The God who made all things, he can, within seconds, step into the presence of Almighty God. This past Thursday, Ruth and I were in Washington, D.C. for a couple of days. And on Thursday morning, Ruth and I had breakfast with the president. Now, when I say that, Ruth says, that sounds very impressive, but it's not as accurate as I'm telling you, because there was 3,998 other people at the breakfast as well. Now, in my somewhat simplistic mind, that's a mere detail. In my mind, I've got it recorded as breakfast with the president, 6.30 Thursday morning. There was never a hope in a million light years that I would ever be in contact with the president. But I know this. In a heartbeat, I can enter the presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Nehemiah understands whose presence he's in. He understands who he's speaking to and who he is dependent on upon. He's looking up. And then he looks back. Notice what he says at verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you. 
you found his heart faithful to you. What does faithfulness mean? It means this. Someone who's there for the long haul. Someone who's demonstrating diligence, perseverance, a willingness to keep going when opposition mounts and things are not working out. Abraham, the same. And Abraham's faithfulness was a reflection of God's faithfulness to him. That's what was happening with Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew that over the last seven and a half weeks, God had been faithful. And in praying for the city of Jerusalem, he's saying to him, remember all that God has achieved in your past. And in fact, he says to them, look at Abraham who was found faithful. He goes on and says, remember when you were taken out of Egypt. Remember when you crossed the Red Sea. Remember when you thought it was all over. God was still there. And he still cared for you and still prayed for you and was there with you, helping and granting you the strength that you need. That's exactly what is happening here. Now turn to the end of the chapter, verse 38, chapter 9, where Nehemiah has challenged the people and encouraged them and inspired them And they respond in verse 38, in view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And then chapter 10, just glance at it. Nehemiah and the governor are mentioned first. In other words, the civic and political leaders. Then the religious leaders are the Levites. Then the leaders of the people. Then the rest of the people. Verse 28, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from their neighboring peoples. And then as it goes further and further and further into the chapter, you discover that they are deadly serious in their response to God. And the question is this, why do they feel they need to write it down? That's how chapter 10 opens. They wrote down their response. Why? Because they wanted to hold themselves accountable to all that God was doing in their lives. Now, if you're anything like me, my mind is constantly filled with one idea or another or what I think will be helpful and I share them with Ruth and she looks at me and shakes her head, rolls her eyes and I think, well, that's not going to work. So I just, I forget about that. And then I try and take all these esoteric thoughts and abstract concepts and in writing them down, it helps me to focus. And in writing them down, it helps me to plan. In writing them down, it helps me do what? Serious thought always precedes significant change. Serious thoughts always precede significant change. And that's where the people of Jerusalem are at. They understand for the first time in centuries They have a city that they can now live in. This is a city where they can put down roots. This is a city that they can influence and shape and fashion as God calls them. It now has a moral and spiritual 
heartbeat. Whereas before, there was no hope and no future. And here is God at work. And they are so touched, they respond in writing. And what do they write? Jump over to verse 37, chapter 10. And what they write is this. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and our new wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect tithes in all the towns where we work. And then jump to the end, the closing words of the chapter, we will not neglect the house of our God. What is going on there? Simply this. God is at work. He's preparing them for what's to come. They are so deeply moved. They are saying, we are with you. We want to be part of all that you're doing. We like all that you have accomplished thus far. And we are putting it in writing to hold ourselves accountable. Now, how do we begin to apply all that we have been reading here? Well, the first thing you find at the end of the chapter is what's called a tithe. And most of you have been around Christian circles long enough to know that when we talk about a tithe, we mean this, 10%. And the question is 10% of what? So hold that question. As Christian people, when we bring up our children or our grandchildren, we would like to do so in a Christ-like manner. When we interact with our neighbors in our neighborhood, we want to be Christ-like. The folks in work, our relationship with them, we want it to be Christ-like. In other words, we try to follow Christ in every aspect of our lives, in our relationships, and in our homes, our place of work, as we have said. And as Christian people, we also believe this, that we should take 10% of our income and give it to ministries that God has called us to support. And it's a fairly straightforward exercise. And that's exactly what's happening here. Because here is Nehemiah saying to the people of Jerusalem, as we move forward, as God takes us into the future, don't forget to take part of your income and place it to one side and give it to the ministries God is calling you to support. It's as simple as that. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky, and this is where you're going to say, Richard, it wasn't you were just uh, challenging us this morning. You were stepping all over our toes. So please be patient with me. And most of you, if you worship with us on a Sunday morning regularly, if you're watching on television, if you're listening as we live stream the service, you will know that as a congregation, we are about to embark on a $35 million capital campaign. That is a huge construction project. It will involve taking down some of our current buildings, our gymnasium, some of our children's classroom spaces, and so on. And it will involve putting up a new gym, a new worship and art center that will seat 1,100 people. I've just come from the Ignite service. We were out of room. We had 600 seats and are out of room. And so we are now needing a new worship and art center. 
In addition to that, we will have a children's area purpose built. We will have a multi-purpose gathering space, a new youth floor, and we will also have additional adult Sunday school rooms for classrooms. So there's a lot going on. And $35 million is a huge number. When people say to me, Richard, don't worry, it's just a number. It's not. It's huge. It's absolutely enormous. And our question is, is God moving us in this direction? Is this where he's taking us? And our elders and deacons and senior staff are saying we believe he is. And in fact, some of us would say we're about two years behind. And so it's time for us to move forward. Now, most folks, when I talk to them, will say to me, Richard, we think this is very courageous. We're right behind you. We're praying for you. But it's still $35 million. And most are saying, quite honestly, I just don't have the accumulated wealth or income to be able to even make a dent in that. And some folks are saying to me, Richard, I just don't know how or what I'm able to give. Well, here's my challenge. Exactly as it was with Nehemiah. Think. Discuss as a family. Pray. Plan. Think. Discuss as a family. Pray. Plan. Think. Write it down, just as they did in Nehemiah's day. Father, where are you taking us? How can I step up? How can I help? And some of us have been blessed by God down through the decades, and we have some savings. Others have inherited uh, some savings and are able to give out of that. And that is just a wonderful way to do it. But the vast majority of us will not be there. Earth thinking is, well, we don't have savings. We don't have inherited land or anything of that. How do we respond? And well, let me have a look first. I'm hoping Ruth is down at the Ignite service before I say this. Uh, I just want to cover myself here, but she probably isn't, so I'm going to say it anyway. And she would hear by lunchtime in any case. So probably as a couple, what we're going to do is this. We had planned to put in new worktops uh, in the kitchen and redecorate and do some tiling and new appliances. And we probably now won't. We'll simply put that on hold for the next five or six years. And we'll look at our income, which I suspect most of us will do. We'll say, okay, how much can we give month by month over the next five or six years to start seeing this become a reality? And for us, it will end up being like car payments. Each month, it will just come right out the bank. And why are we doing this? Well, I suspect we are doing exactly what you will do. We're doing it for this reason. That God has called us to be a church in a downtown 21st century location. And he is presenting to us a once-in-a-generation opportunity to be a church who is life-giving and life-affirming in our ministries. To be a church and respond to his call because we believe it's important to have an influence and an impact in the spiritual heartbeat of this city. And we will do that while we hold dearly to Christian values. And we will stand for the sanctity of life. The sacredness of marriage between one man and one woman. We will stand for investing in our children and our grandchildren and in our teenagers. Because one of my top ten prayers is this. When our teens 
go to college, then go into the marketplace and move to Tennessee or move to Charlotte or Atlanta. In their mind, they will say, I want a church like First Pres. I want a church who talk about Christ, who talk about his love, who focus on the transforming power of the gospel. I want to be part of a church at the heart of a city. That's what I'm hoping for. And I'm also hoping this, that in 25 or 30 years, when the next generation look back, they will say they were faithful to the call of God, just as Abraham was all those centuries ago. They were diligent. They persevered. They gave sacrificially. And that will hurt. But please understand this. I am absolutely convinced, and so is our senior leadership here at First Pres, that our best days are still to come. That's my prayer. And so when you are tempted, as I often am, to say this is a massive capital campaign, we cannot pull this off. You're right. We cannot. But I know someone who can. And in prayer and simple obedience and sacrificial giving, we will make a difference that will last for decades. Decades. Are you ready? I'm not sure I'm ready, but the Lord is calling nonetheless, and my job is to be faithful. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this challenge before us this morning. Thank you that each Sunday the Scriptures speak to us afresh. Take us home, please, to be people who are prayerful, seeking to hear your voice, seeking to be obedient, and seeking to be faithful to all that you are calling us to be. Father, grant us by your grace the strength to respond to all that you have laid before us. Now bless us, please, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.